Did societies once considered primitive actually outsmart the mighty British Empire? Prepare for untold stories of defiance that will blow your mind. Hey there, history explorers. Welcome back to Ramblings of a Sikh. I'm your host, Amr Singh, and today we are tearing down myths and unearthing the secrets of the past. We're joined by a special guest. Say hello to David Viviers. Thanks for having me. The brain behind the intriguing book, The Great Defiance. Now, most of us have been fed the tale of the British Empire as this great civilizer of nations. But hold on a minute. What if I told you there's a whole hidden treasure trove to this narrative? They were, were kind of durable and, and powerful enough to absorb European communities and actually reshape them. And it's the Europeans that had to navigate these complex and very powerful systems that they met. Systems of sovereignty, of authority. Picture this. Societies that the British supposedly discovered, they were not just sophisticated, they were leagues ahead. Wealthy, ingenious, and here's the kicker, making the Brits' jaws drop in awe, and as we'll hear, envy. Finally, some of the British start to visit Dahomey, and they take their stereotypical attitudes with them. And um, one of them are captured and they're sent to the capital of Bomi, which is about 50 miles inland. And he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm captured. And he writes back to the Royal African Company and its directors in London. Send me some, you know, send me a crown and a scepter and let's dazzle this guy and hopefully he'll release me. Uh, and then he writes back another letter a few months later. He's like, forget that. I've been to this guy's palace. It's astonishing. So make sure to stay tuned to find out how these societies were outsmarting, outshining, and outright dazzling the British Empire. Buckle up as we globetrot through time, uncovering the truth where the underdogs fought back with wit, wealth, and wonder. His wealth is astonishing. You know, his his you know he has his palaces, twelve palaces interlocked. Each one is as big as Saint James Park in London. We're ripping through the pages of history, debunking myths and reliving the epic flashpoints of history between the sophisticated indigenous people of the pre-modern world and the then upcoming and largely insignificant British Empire. So the English, they rock up in 1602. They established their very first uh, trading post in Banton. Um, and they're at the very bottom of the pecking order. And the first 10 or 15 years of their attempt to get that trading post up and running is just absolutely hilarious and there's a couple of anecdotes now let's get straight into it Thank, thanks for having me um you know uh, a wonderful captive audience so that's that's perfectly happy with me and thanks for taking the time to to read the book i appreciate it no no and absolutely not a problem i think one thing that i really appreciate nowadays and especially with a lot of the scholarship is the focus within kind of the study of the british empire seems to have shifted since i was at university so when i was at university it was all niall ferguson and, and those type of characters who were writing the books and we were being, they were, I were prescribed reading. Um, I still have it on my bookshelf and it was a half decent book to, to, to get you introduced to the empire. But books such as yours, The Great Defiance, even uh, the book that Nandini Das just put out recently, Courting India. Again, it just shows such a completely different perspective of what's going on. I mean, that, that, that should, that should happen, right? Because you're, you know, I don't want to age you and I or, or your listeners, but, you know, if you think about Niall Ferguson's book is, what, 20 years old or something like that. And, you know, those are the sorts of books that also got me interested in the British Empire because, you know, they that you know, in, in their kind of emphasis on the kind of triumphant narrative of Britain in the world um, and that sort of very positive reinforcing that, that Britain was relevant and it was powerful and it made a positive net contribution to you know human civil i mean who wouldn't want to read that story and you know that those books are popular for a reason i think they've endured for a reason i've got those you know i've got 
and my bookshelves are replete with you know those sorts of books and you know, Lawrence James and you know all these great historians and their fantastic histories uh, and they're, and they're, there's a place for those still and I think they're important um, and I think that any field that hasn't shifted from you know what it was doing 20 years ago is probably a field that's in trouble and I think one of the brilliant things although you know <laughs> you talk about the British Empire today in a very kind of antagonistic kind of contested kind of public conversation um i still think that it's a healthy field that's evolved and i think that just that it's a sign of a of a kind of fruitful area of scholarship when everyone's talking about it um and that it shifted so much and that's that's provoked a wider conversation so but for me you know that's 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 a positive thing people maybe you know maybe uh arguing against that change that's fine and it shows that it's a provocative conversation so 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 yeah so i i kind of grew up with those books and and I like to think that I'm yeah, challenging those sorts of histories, but also in a way sitting alongside them. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I have a question, obviously, in, in relation to your book. But one thing that just got my interest, especially just as we've been talking about kind of the shift in the field over the last 10, 15, 20 years or so, is that when I was at university, and this is only like a decade ago now, the debate around empire was nowhere near as kind of antagonistic and vitriolic as it is today. And my question for someone who's studied history, for someone who's just put out a book recently in this current climate, what what do you think has caused that change over time? Like, why do you think in just a space of 10 years, we've gone from Niall Ferguson, Lawrence James to kind of like empire should come back type of reasoning? I think it's a really complex kind of um, relationship between what's happened in academia which, you know, academia can, oh, it depends on the discipline, but I think it can be a very kind of um, inward-facing um, dynamic. It can be very sort of uh, very small bubbles and circles, and we often publish for one another and for small audiences. And, um, you know, the typical academic monograph might reach an audience of sort of 500 people at most. Um, and so that sort of, and that's important because, you know, there's that, those sorts of small academic communities that build on one another's, scholarship in intense ways and and you know propels our fields forward um and, and but what that ha- what that tends to, to mean is that there's a massive lag between what academics are doing and the really kind of rich scholarship uh and to what the pub the wider public are receiving and what they're engaging with and so what those two things uh, and i think that's that's fine in a way that's po- probably natural but i think that it's specific specifically in terms of you know, history of colonialism and the British Empire particularly, that sort of caused a big problem because um, the relationship I I think is really interesting is the, you know, is it the scholarship that feeds wider public conversations about topics or is it those kind of wider contemporary societal issues that then feed into our scholarship? And the answer is probably both because, you know, all academics and historians uh, are, are human, I think, mostly. Um, and uh, yeah, no. And so we are obviously influenced and draw on the issues that are happening today. Um, and, and I think to a degree that's intensified the debate and, as you said, made it slightly more you know, contentious and contested. And so you think about the things that have happened in the past few years, such as you know, the toppling of, um, of, of statues of, of prominent slavers or even if you think in the states, especially in the southern states, of uh, you know, civil, uh, southern civil war generals and there's kind of been a a contemporary backlash that's tied into broader movements to do with uh you know think of just a couple like black lives matter for example um and then you've got a kind of raging culture war 
um, uh, which extends to a whole bunch of uh, issues, everything from you know um, from trans rights to you know identity politics and and all of those. So so this is a this is a time where we're really grappling with our culture and our identity. Um, it's a time where um, you know historically um, oppressed and suppressed communities, you know whether you know um, you know cultural, racial, or, or otherwise, are you know attempt to kind of reclaim their space and to exercise autonomy from kind of traditional, you know, kind of um, mainstream, predominantly kind of white Western narratives of our past, and so that's all happening. But and this is often the criticism that's leveled at historians that, that that challenge the very kind of traditional narratives of the British Empire um, is that they're being led by these issues. Well, we're being informed by these issues, but we've also informed these issues ourselves through our scholarship, which, whilst it doesn't re- reach massive audiences, uh, uh, it's it, you know hopefully, as in all disciplines, hopefully contributes to um, to educating the public on these issues. And so, um, some of the stuff that I, I think you know, media pundits and politicians and uh, and those uh, people often on the right are, are really against, the, you know, we've been doing as historians for, for decades now. I think going all the way back to, I think, post-colonial scholarship from the 70s onwards. Um, and, you know, from the 90s, neuroimperial history, global history, um, you know, shedding, a, you know, light on the the kind of massive impact that uh, the trading and slave people had on the British economy and, and its state and the royal empire played in culture and these things have been going on for decades um and so for a lot of people i think uneducated on those facts seems to think that this is something new and historians are being driven by uh the phrase you hear sort of bandied around about cultural marxism and wokeism whatever they mean um and i, I wish i we, we you know i think historians have a little chuckle because you know, we've been plugging away at these things issues for decades um and it's always nice to, when our scholarship is called new and <laughs> but um but it's a, so I think there's that kind of cyclical dynamic in which, yeah, contemporary issues feed scholarship and but scholarship also feeds those contemporary issues. And I think that we've just gotten to a point where those two things have met in quite a spectacular way. And what's kind of kicking off broadly in the public conversations people are having about empire is in a way uh, reflecting the scholarship that's been done over the past few decades. And so we've got this almost perfect storm, a reckoning of our field publicly and academically. And that's getting a lot of notice. No, no, definitely, definitely. Now, just coming back then to your book, it presents an alternative narrative, as we discussed at the beginning. It's it's very different to some of the, say, the the books that I would have read or other people may have read like a decade ago at university. And your book focuses mainly on the resistance faced by the British Empire in various parts of the world. Now, my question is, what inspired you to take that perspective? Because even for me, when I was reading, before I got hold of the book and I was kind of reading the blurb and and the kind of little bit of text that's on Amazon. The angle of it was something completely unique. I had never actually come across any book that had collated in different areas of the empire resistance. There are books on resistance in specific localities, but nothing kind of on a bigger, more comparative uh, study. So I guess what possessed you to take on such a big piece of work? Because your book's not small by any means. (laughs) No, it's not. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Um... Yeah, so this is this actually comes. I mean, it's very timely. I'll give give the book its due. It is timely, and the fact that we are currently debating this these very issues in the media, in politics, and in society at large. But it, but it it actually just came naturally through my academic research. My my previous uh, research focused on the East India Company and the way it laid the foundations for the British Empire in Asia in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, and it was looking 
kind of more specifically at the sort of resilience of um, political and economic structures in the Indian Ocean and how they didn't just kind of crumble when the Europeans arrived, but they were, were kind of durable and, and powerful enough to absorb European communities and actually reshape them. And it's the Europeans that had to navigate these complex and very powerful systems that they met, systems of sovereignty, of authority, um, um, and the, the fact they had to kind of, once they adapted and, and learned to play by the rules of the Mughal Empire or Tokugawa Japan or wherever, then, then they could kind of thrive and be successful kind of under the umbrella of Asian power. And so that, that was my original research, my PhD, and, and then my, my first book. Um, and so when I finished that, I thought, well, this is, you know, this covers a broad area, obviously, when we say the Indian Ocean. I mean, everywhere from, you know, um, the Arabian Peninsula all the way through um, to the South China Sea. And that's a large kind of area of what will you know, becomes the British Empire, but I wanted to see whether that held true for the kind of wider theatre of British imperialism, i.e., the rest rest of the world. And I, you know, as a specialist in, in as a South Asianist, I, you know, I, I obviously I like to think I know a lot about the British Empire, but you know, a lot of these areas were almost entirely new to me as an academic. And what I did know of places like the Caribbean and and the, and North America, um, it, an island even is that. Essentially, that this they were just steamrolled by a far more powerful and sophisticated um, British state and its various kind of subordinate um, trading companies and and colonial institutions. And you know that the people that lived there were either wiped out by disease or quite easily overpowered. And much of the historiography and the scholarship was about settler colonialism and the impact it had and the way it decimated these communities, rightly so, which of course it ultimately did. And so I thought, and when I started to think about it, I thought, I'm not sure I can take this sort of model for the expansion of the British Empire, where it's ultimately had to, in, in many way areas, give ground to the existing cultures and states that exist there. So I thought, well, I'm not sure. And so I did a lot of research um, and I was kind of blown away by the fact that actually, that yes, the, the key narrative in places like the Caribbean and, and in indigenous North America is one of conquest, colonization, displacement, erasure genocide but it's not the only narrative um and that there are stories of kind of really spectacular power um and i didn't want that to take away from narratives of victimhood um i wanted that to sit alongside them and so we we don't just reduce indigenous and non-european people in the age of the so-called rise of european empires just to victims just to passive inevitable victims of colonialism and i wanted to show that None of these places went quietly. None of them went easily. Some of them succeeded in you know, ejecting or expelling the English and later British uh, um, colonists. And um, those that did ultimately succumb to British power, it was often a kind of intergenerational, sometimes over a century long resistance or, or defiance. Um, and that kind of defiance could come in many different ways, you know, bloody um, you know, conflict or even, you know, frustrating British ambitions. And yeah, and so I started to see these stories in places like the Caribbean, North America. Um, and I thought, yes, we can take elements of my previous research. And I think I can paint it on a kind of global scale and we can get a maybe entirely new story about the British Empire. So then how did you go about the process of choosing what to include and what not to include? Obviously, your book, as we've just mentioned, and I'm sure as people have seen, is a substantial piece of work. Like there is a lot to get through and there's a lot included. But I'm sure there's a lot of research you did that isn't included. So how did you go? Was it more kind of like a 
you wanted almost somewhere from across the globe or was it particular cases that just stood out to you that you were like actually these make more of a compelling narrative for argument's sake yeah i think uh, that's i'm glad you've asked the question because it was actually one of my kind of key methodological challenges um at first i wanted to do everything i wanted to be comprehensive and i wanted to you know and when i pitched this book um uh at, you know there was it was supposed to be 25 chapters and i wanted to cover you know i didn't want to lose you know leave anything out and had to sort of bring that down but even when i submitted the manuscript which was well in excess of 500 pages my editor was like this is almost like an encyclopedia of the british empire that's not quite what we're going for uh for a sort of almost a narrative history so um so it was yeah no so essentially the kind of method behind choosing these was there's a number of considerations so this is by this is not a comprehensive history of the british empire it doesn't go year by year it doesn't cover every area of the world um although like you said it, it does deal with a, a good chunk of them and so what i thought um were the key kind of criteria in selecting these case studies is that identifying the different forms of the way you can defy a hegemonic superpower with imperial ambitions and and um and so i wanted to look at sort of three different themes and find case studies that reflected those which i which i did in abundance and and so the first one were were those kind of cultures and those those states which um defied through through resistance through conflict often as i said earlier intergenerational um and um and you know i had examples like um the powhatans in virginia uh, back then seneca moco the indigenous name for it um the kalinago indigenous people of the caribbean um uh, the irish as well these were bloody conflicts which stretched across decades and centuries and was the kind of most obvious resistance you might think of when you think about the British Empire. But then I wanted to look at the way um, the uh, defiance could be offered um, less directly. So um, I wanted case studies that showed how the British and their ambitions were often frustrated and therefore led to failure, withdrawal, or they were expelled by far more powerful um, uh, people. And, and so, you know, looking at places like the Mediterranean, the Ottoman Empire, looking uh, in Asia, the Mughal Empire, Tokugawa, Japan, um, uh, China. These were the world's, uh, the early modern world superpowers. And it was interesting to see um, that they didn't really need to resist, in a lot of cases, the English, that more of that had to sort of subordinate them and, and put them in their place. And that, that defiance often came in the form of frustrating English ambitions for monopolies over trade um, or for uh, wanting to acquire territories and forts and being unable to do so. And so it kind of highlighted a different form, a different way in which the, the British were often um, kind of reshaped as they expanded. They, some avenues they could go, some that closed off to them, others they had to withdraw and abandon. Um, and then the last one was looking at this idea of hegemony um, and, and seeing where um, where even at the height of a British colonial expansion in the late 18th century, where the book ends just before the, the modern period, where even as the British Empire was, you know, hegemonic and was gobbling up large parts of the world, that the, the new powers were emerging, new non-European and indigenous powers could still uh, emerge, could, you know, withstand British pressure or attack and establish themselves into the the 19th and even in some cases early 20th century and so it that was sort of suggesting that defiance also comes in the form of longevity and that that by the modern period by the 19th century that the british were not 
this was not a period in which the sun, you know, never set, and that this was still very much large parts of the world that could that had tangled with the British but come off better and could survive. And so, if you break the kind of story of defiance or resistance to the British Empire up in those kind of themes, it came a lot easier to choose those case studies. And so, within those themes, I was looking at flashpoints of of tension, whether it's between the East India Company and the Mughal Empire. Uh, of, of bloody resistance, so you know, fighting against colonization and conquest, um, and of um, you know, flashpoints of of, uh, of kind of seizing control and power. So, you know, who who's going to set the terms of engagement in these various encounters? And places like West Africa were a good example. So yeah, so I had to have quite what ended up being quite a strict methodology. And there's you know, there's there's you know, there's there's so many things left on the cutting room floor and left unexplored and um, and that was something as an academic, academics, you know, really as thorough as they can be about their small silos of interest. That was hard for me to do. It took several people to sort of stop me and go, no, go back and shape it. And yeah. No, no, first. Just, just before we dive into kind of looking at some of the flashpoints that you studied, I just want to uh, kind of get more of an input in relation to, so obviously we spoke about how some of the cultures and societies that the British are discovering or kind of coming into contact with in the early period are wildly sophisticated and massively resilient against this new power that's trying to kind of get in on things i would just like you to share some examples of those cultures and what made them in particularly sophisticated but also resilient towards the british i know you've kind of shared a few as we've just been talking about the previous questions but is there like maybe one or two that really stick out to you from like your work yeah, I can think of a couple, and I'll start with one where, which is the most surprising of all, because the sheer amount of literature, contemporary literature during the early modern period that was that was published by colonists uh, that that really transformed the way we saw these people, has been the opposite of sophisticated in culture. That process of othering that the English and other Europeans were so expert in, um, and and so yeah, which is influential today. We you know we. You know, there are certain stereotypes and things that we carry with us today based on these, you know, three, four centuries old efforts of, of English colonists to justify their imperialism. And, and so and so when I looked at Ireland, for example, then that was a real power imbalance I was expecting that, that you, you don't also sometimes you don't even hear about the colonization of Ireland because in, in one way, Ireland is sort of folded into domestic British history. Um, and is not viewed by by people back then as a colony, but as a kingdom, um, um, just like um, Wales and then later Scotland. And and but well, that's completely right. That's that was an intentional process done so that they could cast the people in Ireland that, that defied them as rebels, and the whole kind of toolkit of state power could be used against them. But but actually, you know, Ireland is it's it's England's first colony. Um, it's this sort of laboratory for the experimentation and practice of strategies of colonialism that they took out to the rest of the world um but and, and so i was i was expecting to see this sort of very dominant english political military cultural force that reshape ireland into the kind of country that we maybe know it as um and, it, and nothing could be further from the truth so uh, what struck me is that when the i mean the english had really been colonizing ireland since the kind of Norman times, back in the sort of 12th, 13th century, lashing it with Anglo-Norman um, barons who were attempting to seize it. 
and sees its uh, uh, land as part of the wider Norman expansion across the British Isles. And um, and they struggled to do so. Um, and this kind of attempted conquest of Ireland goes on for three, four hundred years, all the way up to the beginning of the Tudor period. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because um, the colonists that are being sent there are being seduced by the culture, um, kind of Gaelic Irish culture. Um, it's got a very vibrant Christian worship. Um, it's it's kind of shaped by bardic traditions, which are very kind of rich and alluring. Um, you know, there's there's society is really shaped by family and kinship, um, and so it was, this is a very kind of seductive culture. And, and what happens when the English go over? Over many generations, they settle down, they marry Irish men and women, they adopt the language, they adopt the fashion, um, they name their children Irish names. And so what happens is when the kind of Tudors come up and they, they write, right, we need to reconquer Ireland because it's kind of been lost. You know, the English that were sent over essentially have that term gone native. And so they, there are a lot of accounts of, uh, and they're known as the old English. They're no longer English anymore. They're the old English. They're basically Irish. And there's a, so several centuries of, of English people that have gone over and, and essentially, yeah, been converted. It's kind of kind of um, counter-colonialism. And, um, and so I thought that was interesting the way that, uh, and so it was so, such a powerful culture, Irish culture, um, obviously today, but also back then, in that the, the English crown had to pass um, acts through Parliament to ban English people from marrying Irish people and from adopting the Irish language and culture. So even when the Irish lords lose their political independence, even when their territory is occupied, what the English never succeed in doing is is, is spreading English culture. English culture is, is very limited. It's very marginal in, our, in Ireland in the, at the end of the conquest, which takes 150 years and is finally achieved at the beginning of the 17th century. But even then, and many of the English um, after the conquest comment how you know the, the conquest is unfinished because the Irish Irish culture and society carries on, its laws carry on, it thrives, um, despite the fact that Ireland itself is is basically subject to a military occupation. Um, and so I thought that resilience of the culture and its inability to succumb to English, so-called the superiority of English culture, um, you know, the age of Shakespeare and, and whatnot, and the Irish just didn't buy it. They saw it as heathenish, as barbaric, and it's a great in kind of reverse of that traditional idea we have about you know uh english culture being quite superior so so that's a really good example i think of the kind of the durability of culture even once the political independence of ireland has been crushed the irish people and their culture survives and i think that's great and that and i think that's what keeps the kind of the flame of resistance alive all the way through the 18th and obviously 19th and finally independence in the 20th century they can draw on that that the, you know the survival of their culture um, so that, that's a great one. In terms of sophistication elsewhere, um, I thought um, a really great example was uh, the Kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa. Dahomey is quite a popular popular topic of of study for people looking at abolition and the trade in enslaved people. Uh, it's less well known um, in its kind of earlier period when it's forming, the kingdom's forming, and um, and before the seventeen uh, twenties, uh, Dahomey is an inland kingdom. Almost no Europeans have ever visited it. From the 1720s, it starts to spread out and conquer the coast and, and with it the big ports for the slave trade that the Europeans are based on. And so um, finally, some of the British start to visit Dahomey and they take their stereotypical attitudes with them. Um, and um, one of them are captured and they're sent to the capital of Bomi, which is about 50 miles inland. And 
he's like, oh no, I'm, I'm captured. He writes back to the Royal African Company and its directors in London. Send me some, you know, send me a crown and a scepter and let's dazzle this guy and hopefully he'll release me. Uh, and then he writes back another letter a few months later. He's like, forget that. I've been to this guy's palace. It's astonishing. His wealth is astonishing. You know, his, his you know, he has his palaces, 12 palaces interlocked. Each one is as big as St. James Park in London. And he writes back and, you know, he's got wardrobe after wardrobe adorned with European silk hats and gowns and jewels. And this guy is swigging brandy in the middle of the day, life goals. And uh, and 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 so they're kind of astonished by uh, uh, not just the culture itself, but but the the wealth, the the kind of wealth and um, the luxury the West African elites were it were enjoying. And I think that that um, and 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 soon they they find out about the kind of military power of Dahomey, um, which is is quite considerable and is able to essentially repeatedly put Europeans in their place and prevent them from from kind of kind of reshaping the trade and enslaved people to their advantage. And so um, and I think these are two very different examples. One is about the sort of durability of Irish culture. The other one is about, yeah, the sheer unexpected wealth and power of some of these kingdoms and you know it's said in a very derogatory kind of derogatory very derivative of europeans you know i wouldn't expect to see anything like this in this part of the world but the subsequent power dynamic shows that you know that these europeans are on the back foot um and um these are the sort of you know and this is the heartland of uh you know the trade in enslaved people when our main narrative is reducing west african people to to slaves and but west africans could also you know, deal with Europeans from a position of power. And the kingdom of Dahomey is a really good example of that. Thank you for that. I, I've been, um, there's so many questions that I can ask off the back of that, but we'll just get, we'll just go down a tangent. So um, we obviously, you spoke earlier about some of the flashpoints that you've covered for, for during the book. And one thing I think that a lot of people listening may kind of be uh, wondering is, considering a lot of the history is written by the British and a lot of the narrative, a lot of the information that comes out is, pro-british to some degree how do you go about researching and studying and how, and kind of what was the most challenging part of your research yeah i mean again other than thinking about you know how can i how can i take these massive areas and and kind of kind of crystallize them into some kind of manageable book uh the other the other big challenge methodological challenge yeah is of course the sources is that the early modern period and a lot of these cultures for, for, for Europeans are, uh, you know, especially indigenous cultures in places like North America and the Caribbean are not, and, you know, they don't record, there's no, there's very few written records. Um, and, and so those that do survive are entirely ethnographic in the fact that these are or anthropological, these are Europeans studying them and therefore we get the colonial gaze and they're not just studying them from an anthrop uh, you know, anthropological point of view, but also uh, or an ethnographic one, but also for a colonial one, and so there are political implications and justifications. It's an it's an absolute minefield, and it's and it's challenging. So let me ask you your last question first: Is that um, looking at um, Indigenous Americans in North America and uh, the Indigenous people of the Eastern Caribbean, the Kalinago, You are almost a hundred percent reliant on English sources, written records, and so there are a number of ways you can navigate. And uh, you know, I'm a big believer in the fact that that will will never get you know an authentic uh account of an indigenous voice or an indigenous perspective i think that's impossible with with first of all with you know 
the people who are writing this history, predominantly people like me, white people from the global north, um, and the fact that we are re- predominantly relying on European records. So there's a few a few tools, standard tools in in you know historians' arsenal as well. As always, treat your sources hostile. You should do that anyway, um, whether you're looking at I don't know, 16th century English tax records or whether you're looking at you know highly loaded English accounts of foreign cultures. Um, and, and, you know, you go in and, and that, that, that takes you a long way because when, when you're looking at colonial accounts, there's a massive amount of twisting and bending these encounters to fit. Usually a domestic audience, whether it's the crown, colonial officials, or whether it's a wider public audience that these accounts are about. And just knowing something about these societies by drawing often on other disciplines, um, but also on, you know, indigenous scholars who are writing about their own cultures you can immediately juxtapose those and the, the, the colonial accounts just completely unravel spectacularly before your eyes. And so there's all, all there's, it's almost forensic. Um, and a really good example is, is one of the first colonies the English attempt to settle in North America is at, uh, in a place called Osamacomac, which um, more famously known as the Lost Colony of Roanoke. It's a very kind of famous story, especially um, in the States and um the guy who was funding these expeditions, um, Sir Walter Raleigh, a famous kind of English colonial guy in the 16th century Elizabethan period, um, he sends this chap, Ralph Lane, to establish this colony. Several attempts have failed. The indigenous people of Osamokomuk, um are are sort of quite powerful and resilient. They frustrate these English attempts to settle there. And, and so he sends this guy, Ralph Lane. Ralph Lane is fresh from the conquest of Ireland. He's a military guy. Um, and he's very clear he's here to subjugate the people of Osamakomuk and create an English Virginia um, on top of this indigenous landscape. Um, and his account is so messed up that it's almost impossible to follow because he jumps around in terms of time. He sets up a story, retraces the steps to change the story, jumps ahead to the end of the story. And so um, that makes it difficult to follow. But from a historical point of view, it makes it quite easy to dismantle because it's just very confusing and his own accounts often Ralph Lane's his the his account is the definitive history, sadly, for these years in uh awesome But it's very easy to dismantle then and he, he often contradicts himself quite clearly. So you can treat these in a very forensic way as hostile and you can understand where they're incorrect, where they're wrong, where they've strained, where they've, you know, misrepresented. Um and we can use, you know, you know, all the progress we've made in, you know, post colonial scholarship in in uh, new indigenous histories and and those sorts of things but the other one is you can be slightly more creative and so we can look at archaeology and there's a lot on indigenous studies for archaeology um you can look at material culture um and some wonderful stuff has come out in kind of reclaiming the lives and communities in places like north america before europeans came along but the one i use a lot for this book is that the english are not the only europeans in these places and so we've also got very vivid accounts by the Dutch and the French and the Spanish and Portuguese. And as they're in, as they're, as they're rivals and they're in competition to colonize these places, you can quite easily play those sources off against one another and get a kind of a, a kind of raw, a kind of more unfiltered idea about what's going on. That works particularly well in the Caribbean, for example. Uh, the indigenous Kalinago people are essentially wiped out from the Caribbean. Thousands of them are deported after the uh, British conquest, which takes almost 200 years. And um, a kind of Afro-Kalinago diaspora 
exist today that spread across Central America and uh, South America. But the indigenous Kalanago presence in the Caribbean itself has other other than a Dominica is, is virtually been eradicated. So that's very difficult. And so we're relying on, again, European um, accounts. But the great thing is, is that the English and the French often settle the same islands at the same time. Uh, they partition them. They go to war over them. And so we can draw on those very different accounts to find out just what happened. A great example of that is um, what's going on in uh, today's Dominica, which uh, the indigenous name for the island of Dominica. So we're in the Lesser Antilles, the Eastern Caribbean. Uh, and it was known as uh, Waiter Kabuli. That's the indigenous name for the island. And in the 1670s, the English have, have, have spent 50 years, half a century trying to colonize these islands. The Kalinago succeeded in essentially partitioning the Caribbean with the French and the English. Uh, and there's a treaty between the Kalinago on the one side and the English and the French to respect the neutrality and the independence of a Kalinago heartland, which is the kind of central string of islands in the Eastern Caribbean, Dominica, St. Lucia, um, um, uh, those sorts of islands. And so when the English try and settle on them, we've got great French accounts of exactly what the English are up to. And we see the way the English are violating treaties. They are displacing indigenous Kalinago, they are exploiting their... And so you can construct a kind of, through this kind of conflict, this contest between Europeans, um, you can juxtapose those sources and, and you can, yeah, you can see various perspectives and get a better idea of what's going on. So that, that's, that's the biggest challenge. And these are the sorts of ways that historians are, are trying. But, but what I would say is that that's not the case for everywhere in the early modern period. So if you go somewhere like the Indian Ocean or the Mediterranean... There's, there's a massive amount of uh, non-European material to draw on. So um, a, a good example for when I looked at the Levant Company in the Eastern Mediterranean and its struggle with the North African so-called Corsairs, the Barbary pirates, as Europeans like to call them. There's obviously, you know, the, the sublime port, the Ottoman government in Istanbul has an extensive diplomatic network and the correspondence from that you know, especially with European monarchs, is extant, and that can be drawn upon. And there's some great correspondence between the various sultans of the Ottoman Empire and the various monarchs of of, uh, of England at the time. If you switch over to India, the Mughal Empire, you know, is one of the most sophisticated, advanced um, cultures and empires anywhere in the world. The ex existing um, written records are, are are very vibrant, very rich, and so I, I draw Mughal chronicles. There's a great tradition in Mughal history of uh, of chronicles, and they've been translated by some fantastic Indian historians, and they survive in quite a, a large number today. And, you know, you can you know, the great thing about studying something like the East India Company is that it probably has the largest written archive from the pre-modern world anywhere. But, and whilst that's a strength, it's also a weakness because we tend to just allow it to dominate everything. And it, uh, but the great thing about studying uh, uh, for the book is that there's so many Mughal chronicles uh, and, and decrees or farmans uh, and diplomatic correspondence has survived that we can easily corroborate what the English are saying and, and what, you know, and chronicles themselves are slightly dodgy historical sources to rely on. But again, they can be used against the English sources. So. Um, so this, this isn't the case, that massive methodological struggle with societies that generally did not record things in written form, like indigenous Americans and Caribbeans, that, you know, that doesn't, that's not the case everywhere. And so, and thinking that is often is, you know, a good example of how we often view this period is that, you know, it's the English records that, you know, wrote down and recorded events and 
they have more integrity and legitimacy. No, there's so much written records um, in Persian from the Mughal Empire and uh, in uh, Turkish from, from the Ottomans that we can construct to an extent uh, a different perspective away from Europeans. But yeah, it, it was a, it's a challenge. It's a you know I say this at the beginning of the book. Um, it's it also requires drawing on to a massive extent the expertise and the scholarship done by people in the global south by indigenous scholars. Um, you know, if you're looking at the East India Company, you're looking at India. There's you know Indian historians. The work they've done in that field is just makes this possible. And so. Um, as something you said at the beginning, which I kind of drawn these kind of very diverse accounts together, that would be impossible without literally standing on the shoulders of, of so much scholarship. And so that the, these books are only possible when that happens. So that's the other tool you can use. No, no, definitely. Now, given that your book is a significant kind of departure from typical Western-centric accounts of the British Empire, what kind of response have you received? um what do you mean no so <laughs> I mean, it's quite early it's early days it's i think yeah. it's been out for about three weeks now um and i would say the response has been exactly what i thought it would be um and i would say so as you mentioned at the beginning the book wades into a, a wider public conversation some people call it culture war you could call it a kind of reckoning with our imperial history and therefore, it's, I guess, some people have described it provocative in both a good way and a bad way um, and good. And, yeah, I wrote I wrote the book I, knowing it would be provocative. And I think that's what good history often does. Um, and I think that it's uh, so I mean, the constituencies that have been vocal about it are, are let's deal with those who have been provoked by it. So, um there's a a project from certain groups on maybe perhaps we can define them ideologically and politically as on the right um and um who would see this as an attempt to rewrite history um and um i mean what i would say is that that's kind of essentially what history is is that each new generation reinterprets the past not based on some indiana jones new artifact that's been discovered but simply on understanding the past through our own set of values and norms and understandings of the world otherwise you know we after herodotus no one would have read another history book again um and so you know we reinterpret the past that's what we do that what keeps history in scholarship. there's no single definitive truth obviously um and so i don't understand that criticism but i think it what it does is by is by showing that non-european and indigenous people could be powerful could shape the environments around them and that the main agent of change wasn't just the british um coming from this heritage of books that you mentioned earlier about where britain kind of you know remakes the remakes the world in its image and modernizes it this book suggests that there was a thriving successful world existing and that the british didn't so much as remake the world as they kind of undone the world that existed and you know, I do find that a, a tragedy. I find the early modern world, obviously, as someone who studies it, as this kind of dazzling place of diversity and rich cultures that we've lost, and uh, and that the kind of homogenizing of the world through the spread of European empires and the Westernization of the world uh, is not always is not always been a good thing. And I think that um, 
our previous narrative is it, it is the good thing, you know, gift, gifting democracy and and Western education. I think that you, we also have to pay attention to what's what's been lost then. And so the, I think that then challenges a sense of identity and culture and idea of the past of Britain as a benevolent force, which we tend to mostly talk about, by the way, really in the modern period, the Victorian period onwards. And a lot of the great history books you and I were talking about at the beginning tend to tend to really focus more on the modern period. And so the other thing my book wants to do is say, no, there's a longer history here of empire. And the book spends a lot of time talking about other European empires and um, you know, the Portuguese and, and the French and so forth. And that there's a, a longer history here that has to be reckoned with. And that picture is less rosy. You know, we're not, there are no empire, there are no railways for the British to build in 17th century uh, America. There's no, there's no democracy to be given because England is not a democracy. And it's predominantly a narrative of colonization, conquest, displacement, exploitation, trade. Yep. And so it's a it's a less rosy picture. And so there, there's been, and, and in terms of that provocation, that's been less well received. Um, and and so that's perhaps fairly obvious. Um, but then I would say then there's a sort of healthy dose of people that um, that perhaps are, are better. Um, or kind of more open to having those histories that they didn't actually know. And I think a lot of the responses, and when I when I chose some of these flashpoints, as we spoke about earlier, I also wanted, I wanted to do some of the traditional ones and rewrite the traditional ones and make people think, wow, I you know, hadn't thought of that. Jamestown, for example. We often think of Jamestown and Virginia as the beginning of the empire. You know, the East India Company's conquest of India. These are kind of better known, although not still not quite widely known. Um, and then I wanted to do some that I had almost no knowledge about and I knew that people would have no knowledge about and so thinking of the Kalanago of the Caribbean when we think of the Caribbean in the pre-modern world we think of the European rivalry for the sugar trade and the slave trade um we we don't think about the indigenous people we just don't and until very recently you know most scholars didn't and that's that's uh, historians only in the past few years have started to you know bring the indigenous Kalanago back into the story and so that that was and that was you know that was such a that just blew my mind that whole chapter writing it researching it and so i want and so people are coming again i, I had no idea about these people i know and so i think i like to think that yes okay it's challenging uh an entrenched narrative and that's you know getting people's backs up but there's also i think far more people that um that have reviewed it or have told me that 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 it's the kind of history is a bit of cliche that that isn't taught at schools that you don't generally get in history books. I mean, you pick up a bit like Niall Ferguson, for example. We spoke about you know there's no names of indigenous people or cultures, and and so this is the book is purposely takes a long time to bring the British into the story because in the dozen or so cultures and states that it talks about, uh, I'd spend a lot of time getting into that history. And and what is remarkable about these cultures and societies, and what did they achieve, and 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 so I think a lot of that is hopefully new to people, and that comes from my own background in global history, studying history beyond Europe, and so I think that and that's that's provoked in a good way. That's made people rethink their understanding of uh, of that kind of thing. So the response has been yeah, fairly predictable how I thought it would be, um, and I don't don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. No, no, definitely not. I think. Um... Even for myself, like reading through your book, there were numerous points where I was like, I didn't know that. This is new to me. Like even uh, about the Kingdom of West Africa, I was like, whoa, that completely re kind of shuffles the narrative. And obviously 
this is something that I enjoy and hence why we have these conversations. Um, but for someone studying it and putting it and like researching it and putting it out in a book, it must have been quite uh quite a journey and actually something that you've obviously had to enjoy, right? Yeah, I did. And the one of the reasons why I wrote the book, and again, I'm doing lots of cliches today, apologies, but I wrote the book I genuinely wanted to read that wasn't on the bookcases behind me. There's been it's been a long time since I mean, maybe uh, John Darwin had a much uh, chronologically bigger book, but it's been forever since we've had an early modern history of of the British Empire for starters. That was missing, and 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 no, no, like one volume in which all these studies were brought together from a kind of non-European perspective. That just didn't exist, and uh, and so when when I was doing my first book uh, some years ago, that that was a book I was looking for and couldn't find because I wanted to use it, and so um, uh, and so I wanted that, and so uh, when I a lot of these as a South Asianist, a lot of these things were semi new to me as well, and I was genuinely blown away by some of the stuff that I was finding, and I think that 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 edged the book on, uh, you know, and then COVID hit, and that created you know problems and challenges, and at one point I kind of put the project down. I thought I'll oh, and then I came back to it, but it's just the sheer kind of fascination of these new cultures for me, and um, almost being a student again and having to rediscover this history that was not present on on the bookcases behind me. That um, yeah, that that genuinely propelled the project forward. And so when pe- people set, sort of said to me, I had no idea about you know the the Barbary corsairs or um, you know or Japan in that period, and 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 so that you know for me is the if it has a defining contribution, it's just the, that it generally adds to people's knowledge of of the early modern period, which is definitely in the shadow of the modern of modern history in a kind of like sense of the wider public. And you go and and one of the 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 uh, research trips I took for this book was not to an archive, but was to as many surrounding bookshops as I can to see right what's the state of imperial history to the general public. And it is just all these books that were written sort of 15, 20 years ago, the Narfos and that of these kind of triumphant histories of Britain and what it did to the world. And that just did not exist. Those kind of slightly more balanced, nuanced accounts that give fair scope to non-Europeans as well. And so, and so, yeah, that I felt there was also a need for it as well. No, definitely. Now, some slightly less serious questions, but still very engaging and interesting. Okay. If you could have dinner with any figure from the period that you've researched and studied, because um, obviously the British Empire, you're studying the period before the British Empire, you're studying the British Empire, you're studying it kind of just like as it's kind of almost, I guess, in its later phases. Mm. Um, who would you wish to have dinner with if you could pick any figure from that time period? And who would it be and why? Um, oh, that's and it has to be one person. Have to be one per- Can't be yes. a dinner party. Can't it could be a, be a dinner party of a, of a few a people. Ted, where I can get a whole bunch of people together in my time machine. No, okay. Um, that's a really good question. I think that I would... Um, I mean, there are several of the British actors in the story I'd probably like to get dinner with, and I can perhaps poison them. Um, and stop <laughs> the horrible genocide of the people there. Kind of, but if I, if from a point of conversation and insight, maybe, um, maybe there's a... There's a chap called Thomas Warner, um, and well, there's there's a number of Thomas Warners, but in sixty in the 1620s, Thomas, this guy Thomas Warner, um, sets up the first English colony in the Caribbean, 
And in his first year, despite the fact he's got a wife and children in England, he has a sexual relationship with an indigenous Kalanago woman and has a son known as Thomas Indian Warner. Um, so he's a, uh, um, a mixed race uh, English Kalanago uh, child. And, um, and so this chap is who I'd like to have dinner with, uh, Thomas Indian Warner, the son. Oh, interesting. Yes. yes, interesting. So, I mean, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, his story it was one of, for me, the more kind of gripping kind of narrative threads to come out of of the book. Um, and sometimes these kind of big histories don't always fit into very neat narrative. Uh, you know, the book chronologically and thematically does a little bit of jumping around, um, which is kind of necessary because it's. You know, the British Empire is all over the place in this in this kind of 250 years. Um, and so there are a few narrative threads, though, that you kind of find and you kind of latch on. And the story of Thomas Indian Warner is one of them. So I'd love to have dinner with him um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of them is, so he, he kind of, he straddles these two worlds, the kind of indigenous Caribbean that we know very little about. And then the new world of European colonialism. The Spanish, uh, before the English turn up, the Spanish have spent a hundred years trying to conquer the Eastern Caribbean, and they fail. But they, they, you know, they, they create these slave raids that decimate the population, uh, unleash epidemics, um, and so the East Caribbean is is left far more vulnerable. But in many ways, that hundred years of contesting Spanish colonialism have created a kind of very sophisticated culture, able to deal with external threats really well. And so when the English and the French arrive, the Kalinago have a very responsive defensive system. Uh, one that is hospitable and entertains Europeans and trades with them, but the moment it looks like their islands are being colonised, there's a very swift response and it's very violent. And so the English um, uh, find to their, um, uh, to their frustration that it's very difficult to colonise these islands. And when they do succeed, it's through um, massacring the indigenous people ambushing them um breaking treaties and launching surprise attacks and that's sort of the only way they can make headway in displacing the people from the land now so there's these kind of two worlds in conflict and and thomas indian warner is a really good example of the the tensions in the early modern world of trying to survive in a world that is becoming increasingly dominated by europeans whilst you still have these indigenous and non-european cultures that are you know resilient and uh and thriving and and so there's a kind of real mix and he he i would say he does it well um as well as he could at that time so what happens is so he's a bit of a cultural chameleon so he adopts a kind of english identity um and uh, he grows up in his father's household on saint kitts um the indigenous name for it is Lymiga, but we know it today as the island of saint kitts or saint christopher in the eastern caribbean and that very quickly um the english massacre 2000 of the indigenous Kalinago and partition the island with the French. Uh, and uh, Thomas Inuwana, uh, his father is the governor of, of the island and he grows up in his house and he dies in uh, 1642. And what happens is um, Thomas Warner Sr.'s wife um, and children have come over to the Caribbean. And so when the husband dies, uh, the wife, uh, you know, resentful that her husband had this relationship with this indigenous Kalinago woman who has a son by him um, in, enslaves her stepson and um, and forces um, Thomas and he wanted to, to work on the plantations and he makes several attempts to escape 
Um, and each time he's put back in chains. I assume there's more people than just the mother, though, because as in he should, he could have just beat her to death or something, right? Like... Oh, absolutely. There's a whole household. This is yeah, a plantation, yeah. so yeah, there's yeah, yeah, yeah. household attendant servants. There's a whole brutal hierarchy uh, that's being built to to maintain the plantation system. It's only just emerging in the Eastern Caribbean, and so and yeah, there are various brothers. Um, one of them quite you know looks quite sympathetically and and. He's the governor on a neighboring island. When he comes back, he, you know, remonstrances with his mum and and liberates uh, Thomas Indian Warner and puts him in charge of the of the slaves on the plantation. Uh, but then this guy goes away again, and the mother enslaves the stepson again. And uh, there's another brother, Philip Warner, who's resentful of his half Kalinago brother and treats him, mistreats him, and forces him to sit. And so eventually, in one of these attempts, uh, Thomas Indian Warner escapes, and he makes his way to his mother's island. Now, after the massacre of her, of her people by the English, she fled to Waiter Kabuli, Dominica, the island of Dominica. And um, it's that's a Kalinago island. There's no European colonization. And what happens is uh, Thomas embraces his mother's culture, his Kalinago side, um, which means being painted with red dye, um, playing the flute um, uh, um, and, and raiding English colonies. And so part of what the Kalinago do is they're highly mobile people and they zip around the Caribbean on these fabulous uh, canoes that are the size of massive trees. They can carry 40 people. They're able to kind of hit and run and, and retreat before the English know what's happened. And he's really expert at these raids. And, and one of the raids he leads is against his brother, his half-brother, Philip's own plantation on the island of Antigua. And there's a great kind of family feud going on. But what the Kalinago do is they liberate. They attack the plantation. They liberate uh, enslaved African people. Um, and they and they integrate them into their community. Uh, the other thing they do is they kidnap the English people that they find. And they don't enslave them like the English do. They integrate them into their community. They com- they, they adopt them into Kalinago communities. Yeah. And so... Um, and and so Thomas Warner kind of climbs up Kalinago ranks on the island of Waitakere, and he's living this indigenous lifestyle. Um, but what happens is when war breaks out with the French, the French capture him because they see him as an English spy because he has these English roots, and and so that hardens him against the French, and he kind of leans a bit more into his English identity during the war. And so he's really straddling these two worlds. Um, after the war. The English kind of caught him and they and because he's kind of he was did captivity and he was tortured by the French and he never sort of um, went over to their side. And so the English admire him for that. And and they they send him a commission. The King King Charles sends to Thomas Warner a commission to act as an English lieutenant governor on Dominica, while he's also becomes the chief of the Kalinago uh, community on the island. So he's actually got these dual roles as Kalinago chief and English lieutenant governor. And he's trying to balance these because the connection with the English brings um, these kind of trading benefits and these commercial benefits. And so he uh, he wants to keep that alive whilst also keeping the English at bay. Um, and so he kind of succeeds in doing that, this sort of bit of trickery. Um, and it's, it's very impressive. And he does it throughout the 1660s and 70s. Unfortunately, war between the English and the Kalinago break out again when the English... Um, violate several treaties they have for Kalinago independence. So he finds himself at war with the English and it's his half-brother, Philip Warner, that very vindictive brother that loathes him, that sends, that leads an expedition to um, Dominica, way to Kabuli, and invites his brother and other Kalinago chiefs on board his frigate. 
um, and um, gets them all drunk. And the English pretend to drink, although they're not actually drinking. They're actually heavily armed. And there are about 90 to 100 Kalinago men, women and children. And uh, Philip gives the signal and they ambush them and they slaughter them to a, to a, to a person. And there's, there's accusations that Philip killed his own half-brother with his bare hands. He suggests otherwise. But either way, he kills. And a lot of these people are his, Philip Warner's relatives. You know, they're, 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 they're kin. And he, he has them all uh, murdered in cold blood. And so I'd like to I'd like to have dinner with someone like Thomas Warner to understand, you know, how how he navigated those those two worlds, the very old indigenous world and this emerging belligerent uh, kind of violent English colonial world. And um, and he did it for so long, so successfully. And although it ended up brutally and uh, and following the massacre, the English were able to exercise greater control over Kalinago territory and so in many ways his death is the end of Kalinago independence in the Caribbean so I think he would be someone fascinating to sit down with and, and talk about these kind of these slightly grey areas between the kind of encroaching English colonialism and the way indigenous cultures had to kind of encounter them and adapt and accommodate it to an extent but also to resist and that's a story that's told also through kind of family as well as colonialism so that's an interesting one that is fascinating that is like as in there is so much in there um and it's insane as in that's so no no definitely and hopefully it's piqued interest so people will go and buy the book and, and read more but that is that's incredible i wasn't expecting such a brilliant answer but no thank you for that it's also interesting for me because i come from a mixed background so i have like a my my mother my grandma my mom's side was blonde hair blue-eyed uh christian who was born in liverpool um my granddad's a Hindu Bengali Brahman who was born in Calcutta and all my dad's side are Sikh um, and have relative and kind of their journey starts obviously in Punjab and then ends up in West East Africa even and then ends up in England in the 70s um, and so obviously I've grown up with nowhere near to the extent of uh, of of, uh, of this Caribbean chat but as in I've grown up in a similar circumstance of having these two diff or even three different cultures and trying to almost not navigate them because I think when I was younger you never quite realized that this was there was a difference per se everything kind of blended um but as you get older you start to see more of the some of the differences and the subtleties and and, and how kind of things culturally are also massively different um for argument's sake Indians love spicing their food that's something that culturally my white grandma wasn't really that fond of so there's there's no type of things right um but that is fascinating. I'm definitely going to have to. But, it, but to it's the same. It's the same story, isn't it? Of um, you know, in a way, the impact of empire has it creates these communities which have to straddle these different worlds. And you know, I think the majority of people would say, isn't that the kind of that that's that's the that's the kind of if if empire has any kind of positive impact, it can be that it can create these wonderfully diverse communities that that pull the world together and that connects cultures as different as you know bangladesh to 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 britain um you know it's not the railways it's not the language it's the fact that you're going to have these kind of communities that can straddle those worlds and that there are these areas between you know the the expanding english frontier and the indigenous communities under assault that there are people caught between them that it's not as straightforward as necessarily resisting or collaborating it's, it's trying to find a place in that changing world for themselves and their communities and i think that's also a very modern 
story filled with tension obviously like you know you say it's very different yeah but let's just think of you know right now especially in our country uh and in places like the states of the of the tensions that has created and and the kind of uh attack that often those communities come under um in such you know deplorable ways um and and so made that maybe not be as overt or as dramatic as it was 400 years ago in the conquest of the caribbean but i think the themes are identical yeah 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 no, no, no definitely now penultimate question um how and i i guess actually you should say what do you enjoy doing when you're relaxing and you're not immersed in researching writing or any anything else that's related to kind of the 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 kind of um what's the word the uh the basically just being an historian like how do you switch off i guess is the yeah. question so i I'm, I'm really lucky in the fact that um uh, this has been a real labor of love and it's my second book and the first book in a way took 10 years it came from my phd and and all that sort of thing but really it's th this book although it took half the time to to research and write it was the, the i think the bigger labor and so that has in a way been all consuming and and things like that but i'm i'm lucky in that a i never take my any job too seriously i'm the kind of person that does not live to work um at all and so and i think that everyone's gonna have that philosophy so uh, but also it's not really my choice i'm i'm grounded by uh, a, a family uh, a couple of young kids that that um that keep me occupied all the time and, and so and so one of the great things about this is that i live uh i live on on the south coast um uh in sussex and um so quite far away from london and from 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 those sorts of places uh where i go in to do my research and try. um and and so i'm kind of quite removed from it and i keep it i try and keep a very kind of regimented uh day and that when the history when i'm you know the door is closed and i go off and i don't think about it and so that i've always been quite good at that um but the great thing is that no one in my personal life could could care less about this and so all my family members have gone out and they've got the book or i've gifted it to them and it sits on the shelf or on the coffee table no one's reading it no one cares and so, and whilst i could be crushed and i could go away and cry right now Actually, it's lovely because um, it, ke it keeps you grounded as a person. Um, it keeps you sufferable for the people around you. But but also it just gives you an ability to detach from the work. And I think work like this, um, especially when you're dealing with empire, colonialism and, uh, you know, it's legacies and themes of, of race. Uh, and, and so it yeah, can be, uh, it is important work. I think there are far more, there are far better people doing more important work than I but I think that it, it can be kind of emotionally and to an extent kind of politically bleeds into your life. And, and okay. so I'm very lucky in that I have people around me that anchor me down. And so I spend, I'd, I'd love to say, um, you know, yeah, all these hobbies, but you know, I, my kids, my kids keep me busy all the time. And, um, and so, and, and they're really young and, and um, it's exhausting. Help me. But um, no, but so that's, I predominantly, a, a, I'm a full-time father and I, uh, if I get any spare working hours in the day, then I I do the history stuff. So um and uh but but no I, we you know um yeah we as a family we we live near the countryside and we're out and about and that kind of stuff is is what keeps me uh keeps me going and so it's a really nice kind of sharp separation between work and family life which is which is nice yeah 
so there you go. I'm not a fascinating person beyond my work. I'm one of those people. You peeled the layers and you found nothing. I'm afraid. No, but except that, but that is what is fascinating, though. Is is that finding like is discovering the person and like knowing that actually you can just have like you can be normal, run of the mill guy who lives on the south coast, has a family, lo like loves his life, and just does this as kind of. But like a, I mean, one of, things so I, <laughs> one of the things I mean I would say, especially when you do work like this um, pre-pandemic. Um, is the the amount of travel required for uh for history anyway, but especially global histories like this. So I've been, you know for for this book, have I you know been to India, to Japan, Caribbean, and or all over for research and and stuff like this. That I always find that people that are more receptive to this kind of history and and change their ideas are those people that tend to be quite well travelled or tend to be uh more engaged with a wider world beyond little old merry England. And I find that those people that are not and that don't like their glorious imperial past to be challenged tend to be those with smaller horizons that have not engaged with bigger cultures and wider cultures and I, and i think so one of the things that you know i said oh this is a continuation of my research but in many ways the book also came about through my own travels um extensive travels and my archival research meeting different people and understanding that you know there are so many different perspectives on these subjects well beyond you know our quite insular idea of empire and, and and britain and so i think that's been great and and also through through things like teaching um before i'm at Bangor university now wells but before then uh, i spent years at queen mary and we're in east london with a very diverse student body and so teaching some of these subjects that have resonated so well with certain students and so is that actually there is a hankering for to understanding a history of this pre-modern period not just through the strict eyes of of Europeans um and so that yeah that's helped kind of inform it and so I think that you know, as I keep saying kind of pre-pandemic but yeah all the travel uh that's that I used to love to do and I did so much uh and are starting to do again thank god um that that helps to inform research I think in a really positive way so add that in I'm a traveler chat that in I as well definitely have to add that in now last question and I promise this is the last question is what is your favorite anecdote or story that didn't make it into your book Oh gosh, um, there is so much that had to get, had to had to be removed to make the book bearable. Um, there are because a lot of this, in a way, I could have written a book that you know is just like the the failures of the British because, um, and this is what a lot of readers have said to me: just how on earth did we manage to assemble an empire? Because we made so many mistakes and there was so much failure, um, and it's quite a, and. And and from that, there are so many stories that you, you're sort of like, oh, my God, this is. And there are so many anecdotes which are embarrassing. You know, if you're looking for it's your history, if you're, if you're looking for your history, you know, for, for pride and for glory, uh, it actually you don't look at the British Empire for those stories because you're not going to get them. And so I can think of a few anecdotes. One of my favorites, it remained in the book in a very like a one throwaway sentence. But the very first place, the English go to when they um attempt to open up asia to trade the very first east india company which was the main trading body which went out to to asia to establish english presence overseas uh the first port of call was banton on the island of java today's indonesia uh, banton was the um hub of the spice trade so we've all got you know you open your spice cupboard you got your spices small cupboard in your kitchen or whatever in the early modern world that would have been worth its weight in gold spices drove early modern global trade so the english wanted a cut in the pepper trade especially banton was the was the key port of the pepper trade and 
um, almost half of the world's pepper passed through it. So the English, they rock up in 1602. They established their very first uh, trading post in Banton. Um, and they're at the very bottom of the pecking order. And the first 10 or 15 years of their attempt to get that trading post up and running is just absolutely hilarious. And there's a couple of anecdotes. My best one is that that this is the beginning of England's kind of overseas engagement. And they're learning about other cultures. They're stereotyping them, of course, and othering them. Also learning about them. And they're trying to get a sense of how to operate in these very foreign worlds. And um, and just, just a month or two after they've landed and set up their post, the Sultan of Banton, uh, who's a young child, he has his, he's being uh, circumcised. And he's having his ceremony um, for that. And part of the ceremony is a month long of the people of Banton, which is a very cosmopolitan port. There's the indigenous uh, uh, Javanese um, and Sudanese people, but there's people from China, from East Africa, from um, from the Arabian Peninsula, from, from, from Japan, all over the world, from Europe. And each community that lives there, and it's a port of 100,000 people, and I'd say roughly half of them are foreign to Banton they have to put on a big show and display and offer a gift um but the one important thing is that gift can only be offered by by women and the east the english trading post is all, all men it's a bunch of guys that have come on this long kind of trip taken six months they're stinky they're tired they're kind of ill they're dying and and they're like where are we going to get a bunch of women to present and they don't have a gift for starters they've just got they're basically they're sending they're trying to sell wool wool is england's primary export now in the tropical climes of indonesia no one wants a woolly jumper from england and so they've got nothing to give the sultan and it's important they make because gift giving conventions in this culture it's important they make a splash and they impress the sultan um and so you had this hilarious anecdote this diary recorded by the chief of the english trading post where they're trying to basically create a DIY present. They're getting together a bunch of things and they're cutting and pasting. They're trying to assemble like a rattan frame and they're trying to create like a, a artistic impression of a tree with birds in it. And they're like sticking things and it sounds god awful. The other one is they, they're, try, they're going around the port soliciting women to come and, 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 and work for them and give these gifts in this procession. And um, in the end, they can't find any women willing to do it. And so what they do is they they essentially um, they hire a bunch of Chinese children, boys, a bunch of Chinese boys, dress them up as girls and have them lead this homemade rattan tree. And by all accounts, the whole thing was a complete failure. They don't get any trading privileges. The Dutch, the Dutch are laughing their heads off at them. And so it's just a great example of how in this earlier period, yeah, a lot of English failure is caused by the resilience and power of the people they meet. But actually, the English themselves, they're just complete plonkers and they don't know what they're doing. And they're really at the bottom of the pecking order culturally, commercially, militarily. And that whole dynamic to change where they're at a position, they're at the top. And they're, that takes like 250 years. And that's what the book says. You know, we, you can't just start off with the all-conquering British Empire. It really comes from a quarter of a millennium of messing up, being defeated, getting their bottoms kicked and gradually adapting and learning. And so I think that anecdote really captures the kind of almost the farce of English colonialism early on. They're coming from such a place of weakness in parts of the world and they're the, the, the hierarchy of cultures. And they we're used to British colonialism saying, you know, Britain is leading, you know, civilizing the world. Far, uh, rewind 250 years and they were the, the joke of the world in many, 
many respects. Well, even yeah. even on your point about and and again, it's something that kind of reoccurs throughout our conversation today. And even when um, I had the pleasure to host Nandini Das about the fact that the empire wasn't inevitable, and so many times and times again, as you're saying, your your anecdote from from Java from Indonesia, and similarly when kind of like a, a similar circumstance when we uh look at the history of the anglo Sikh wars often it's kind of read that this british almighty force just steamrolled over the Sikh empire and that was it but i read a few uh personal accounts of sold british soldiers and they are time and time again saying alcoholism is a huge problem i like whole regiments are just dying from getting too pissed they can't handle the heat and they're dying. They can't handle the mosquitoes and they're dying. They can't get enough food and they're dying. They can't get water and they're dying. And then I'm reading it and I'm going, how the hell did they actually even do anything? No, I know. It's it's, 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 it's absolutely astonishing. And if you think that, you know, that process as well, where, you know, eventually, you know, that leads to the, the folly of marching on Afghanistan and how does that end? You know, the decimation of the entire army. And, and it is. And, and, and so... You know, there is a history to be written of maybe British, you know, perseverance and they just kept at it. But in a way that kind of, you know, lemmings keep going and going and just falling off the edge of a cliff. And, and so it's remarkable. But, you know, places like especially like North America or the Caribbean, there are very few military victories. What happened? It's just the tidal wave of English colonialism, the sheer amount of uh, English colonists that arrived. That uh, They're actually really fleeing the poverty and the instability in England. England is quite impoverished. It's unstable. It's a failed state, I would call it, in the Elizabethan period. And so it's only because of the mass exile of people leaving England that they kind of just, it's like a human tidal wave and they just kind of drown out these cultures. And It's almost and I think like that, a war of attrition in some senses, where yeah, it's just, ab- like, absolutely. just sending ab- enough people. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think in places like India, you know, and especially with the conquest of the Punjab, you know, that, you know, that, that does happen over so long and it takes such fiscal military resources that I don't think you can really describe the British Empire as an effective force. It's a bludgeoning force. It's an attritional force. And I think there's just so much history to be told of that it was a slock and it was uneven and it didn't. And if you look at a map at the end of this period, at the end of the period, I look at the turn of the 19th century and you look at these maps and you think, wow, that's impressive. Look at all that imperial pink. Actually, there's vast swathes of the world that aren't, coloured pink not because the english or the british didn't try it's because they tried and they messed up and it just didn't work and so i think those maps tell us just as much about how the world contained or reshaped the empire as it does the empire uh taking on the rest of the world anyway no definitely um we have got to the end of all the questions that i had prepared i just want to double check is there anything that you think we should include or anything you think we've missed out that you just want to mention before we wrap up no, I think that was pretty thorough. I think that was no. pretty good. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, no, not a problem. I just like to double check because I don't want after the recording to be like, oh, actually, there's this huge segment which would no, have been. No, I had that. I have done that on a pod where we got so carried over the conversation around like the culture war that I had to say to the chat, oh, can we just mention my book that that is coming out? And he was like, yeah, let's do let's do ten minutes on your book. Um, but no, that was perfect. Thank you. No, thank you. Really oh. great. Excellent. All I can say is obviously thank you for taking the time out. We've spent almost an hour and a half recording and I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope people listening have enjoyed it. And I hope if you haven't got a copy of the book, please go out and buy one. David actually has two and I'm sure he's bought both of them just to put on his shelf. Um, 
So make sure you do buy copies. And if you buy your copies, also buy them for your family and your friends and anyone else that you possibly can. But um, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. I really, really no, enjoyed No, don't be silly. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for engaging the book. Honestly, it means a million things to me. And if you genuinely enjoyed it, that then that's that's great. That's all I can... And that's a wrap for today's podcast episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating this podcast. A massive shout out to our awesome YouTube members, especially the new ones, Final Inc., German Bawa, Wushu Man, and Parvinder Singh, as well as our older members, Jagraj, Sanji, Vishal Kuldar, Raj Saran, Not Devan, Amanveer Mandir, Hunter Hill, Radaji Kaur, Gurmi Danjal, Gary Pramar, N Singh, GS, and Jazz Dillon. Let's not also forget our amazing Patreon members, including Neil B, Hernan Pizano, Jazz Dillon, Gurpreet Singh, Gurdeep Bath, Anish Man, Ramnik Kaur, Mani Singh, Rav Singh, Yasmin Jaswal, Ramnik Kaur, Gagan Singh, Gurpreet Danjal, and our latest Patreon member, Rajvinder Kaur. If you're passionate about the work I'm doing and want to support it, consider becoming a paid YouTube member to unlock some cool features or join our Patreon community. You can find the links in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in and I can't wait to bring you more exciting content. See you in the next one.